Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. During the summer of 1977, 140 young girls had plans to attend camp at Camp Scott Girl Scout Camp, two miles from Locust Grove, Oklahoma. Three of those girls were 8-year-old Lori Farmer, 9-year-old Michelle Gousset, and 10-year-old Denise Milner. Leading up to camp, Denise had gone from being excited to very apprehensive after she found out her friends had backed out. She had saved money from selling Girl Scout cookies to pay for camp, but began worrying and thinking about changing her mind. Her younger five-year-old sister also began having negative thoughts about something bad happening the next day. On the bus heading for the camp, Denise cried about having to leave both her mother and sister. Her mother had convinced her to go with the agreement that if she called and wanted her to come get her, that she would. A 15-year-old girl sat with her and calmed her down and promised to let her call home later if she wanted to. Nine-year-old Michelle Gousset had attended the year before and was excited to do it again. She was a shy girl whose favorite color was purple and she loved African violets. She even grew them and had asked her mom to take care of them while she was gone. Eight-year-old Lori Farmer was the youngest camper at the camp, but was the oldest of five children in her family and was just a few days shy of turning nine years old. She had trouble deciding between the YMCA camp or the Girl Scouts camp and had asked her mom to help her choose. Her mom chose the Girl Scout camps and this decision would later haunt her. Of the 140 campers, the youngest group was placed in the Kiowa unit and were able to choose their tent mates on the first day. Denise, Lori, Michelle, and a fourth girl was supposed to be in the tent together, but due to an error, the fourth girl was placed in the wrong tent, and once the counselors realized the mistake, they decided to wait and have her move the next day, because as everyone was leaving dinner, it began to storm. This error ultimately saved her life. Of the eight tents in this particular area, only one tent held camp counselors. Instead of the counselors staying in a tent in the middle, they were in a tent farthest away from the last tent that held the youngest of all the children, Michelle, Lori, and Denise. In fact, the counselors only had about two tents in their view. The tents were made to look like cabins, but were wooden platforms with four cots, no lights, and a large flap serving as the door. There were no outside lights, and the first night was a dark and stormy night. No one knew that a monster was lurking in the woods with horrible premeditated intentions carrying a pre-made hand-sewn gag and other sinister items. 
The counselors were mostly between the ages of 18 to 20. The three girls, Michelle, Lori, and Denise, had first met earlier in the day and huddled in their tent alone while the thunderstorm pursued. Their tent, tent number eight, was located at the outermost edge of the wooded camp and was somewhat isolated from the other tents. The girls were told that since it was storming, just to write letters home to their families. Denise completed a letter to her mother that read that she didn't want to stay at camp and wanted to come home. Michelle wrote a letter to her aunt about the storm that night and gave the names of her tentmates, Lori and Denise and their ages. Lori wrote a letter to her mom, dad, and four siblings. Leading up to camp in the previous months, there were signs that someone in the area was up to no good. Things came up missing, a strange man was reported being seen in the woods, and a tent flap had been slashed. Also, a counselor at Camp Scott discovered that her cabin had been ransacked and her donuts had been stolen. Inside the empty donut box was a handwritten note stating in capital letters, We are on a mission to kill three girls in Tent 1. Someone had also created an effigy of a man, which they hanged from a tree by its neck. While both the effigy and the note were strange and upsetting, the letter also mentioned Martians. The counselor brought the note to the camp director, who then threw the note away and dismissed the entire series of events as a tasteless prank. Around midnight, counselor Carla Willite heard some campers giggling outside near the bathrooms. She got the girls and then escorted them back into their beds. Again at 1.30 a.m., Carla was awakened by girls giggling in tent six. From the door of her tent, she shone a flashlight toward their tent and hollered for them to go to sleep. When this didn't work, she and fellow counselor D. Elder walked over to tent six to get the girls to quiet down. From the darkness behind tents one and two, Carla heard a low guttural sound or a moaning coming from the woods. Though they assumed it was an animal, when Carla went to investigate and shone her flashlight in the direction of the noise, the sound stopped but returned after she went back to her tent. The next morning, June 13, 1977, at around 6 a.m., Carla was on her way to the shower when she noticed a sleeping bag lying on the ground not far from Cookie Trail, the main road into the Girl Scout camp. She then realized a girl was underneath and appeared to be deceased. It was soon discovered that all three girls in tent number eight had been murdered. One detective recalled unzipping one sleeping bag and becoming very emotional when the girl appeared to just be sleeping. The other campers weren't told what was going on and were put on charter buses and driven to the Girl Scout headquarters in Tulsa and didn't know why camp, which was supposed to last two weeks, was suddenly ended after only one day. The parents, on the other hand, were informed but weren't given the names of the victims, so they had to wait to see if it had been their child or not. Authorities had gone to the home of Michelle and told her parents that there had been an accident but did not tell them their daughter was dead, and instead they found out from the television. Lori's parents received a call from the head of the Girl Scout organization and was told there had been an accident and Lori was dead, but did not tell them how she died. But first, she called her attorney and insurance company before calling the parents to tell them their daughter was found dead along with two other girls, but did not give any other details. 
The parents would ultimately find out about their children's deaths from the news on TV. After the slayings, several campers and counselors reported they had heard disturbing noises the previous night. One counselor investigated the noises and even saw a dim light in the woods, but she brushed it off and went back to sleep. Approximately 30 minutes later, a camper in tent number 7 was awoken when a man with a flashlight opened the flap to the tent. At around 3 a.m., one Girl Scout heard a scream from the section of camp where tent number 8 was located. Around the same time, another camper heard a scream, followed by someone crying, Mama, Mama. Unsure of what to do and thinking it was just loud being the first night and everyone being excited, the girls went back to sleep. It was initially announced that the girls had not been sexually assaulted, but this was found to be incorrect once bodily fluids were discovered. It's believed that Lori and Michelle may have been killed instantly from blunt force trauma inside the tent before being carried past the counselor's tent. But Denise had been taped and tied and possibly blindfolded and led past the counselor's tent and into the woods, which is where she was ultimately found. Their deaths were described as overkill and many speculated that more than one person was involved. The killer or killers were very brazen by stealing items from tents and opening at least one flap to a tent before ultimately choosing the tent farthest from the counselors. A flashlight with newspapers stuffed inside to muffle the sound of the large batteries was left at the scene of the crime and the light had been covered with tape to make it dimmer. Near the perimeter of the camp, close to a fence line, authorities found a crowbar and beer bottles. Also found was a bloody footprint, bodily fluids, nylon rope, and a roll of duct tape. The roll of duct tape and nylon rope had been stolen from the shed of a local farmer. The farmer was given a lie detector test and passed, but the Tulsa newspaper ran a large multi-page article labeling him as a slayer with his picture underneath. The harassment and threats became so bad, he had to be hospitalized. 200 members of law enforcement and 400 volunteers had surrounded a four-mile area near Camp Scott, and on the 11th day after the murders, many of the volunteers were arrested for public intoxication and marijuana possession. Also after the murders, law enforcement immediately suspected Gene Leroy Hart, and he was reportedly spotted near Camp Scott. Although many suspects were questioned, Hart remained the primary suspect. He had also been raised only about a mile from the camp. Ten days after the murders, several items connected to the killings and the convicted criminal were found in a cave approximately three miles from Camp Scott. In the cave, law enforcement recovered two photographs of unknown women that Hart had developed while working in the photo lab at Granite Reformatory. Also found was the rest of the newspaper that had been stuffed inside the flashlight that was left at the scene, lace panties, and eyeglasses that were stolen from the counselor's tents. On the cave wall was written, The killer was here. Bye-bye, fools. Hart had strangely also taken the glasses of one of the pregnant women that he attacked years earlier. Hart believed he could shapeshift because of the power given to him by a medicine man that helped him avoid law enforcement and search dogs when they tracked his scent. 
This may sound strange, but weeks after the murders, a pair of tennis shoes with Denise's name written on them were placed on the front steps of the building used as a command post at Camp Scott. A man was often seen lurking in the woods around the camp, but as soon as dogs were hot on his trail, they would always lose his scent. The shoes, which were not there when the security guards left, were found as they returned from a search of the woods following another sighting of the man. On top of the sightings, thin strands of thread tied by investigators between trees near the murder scene were found broken and footprints were found in sand spread across several of the trails. They even had three search dogs, known as the Wonder Dogs, brought in from out of state to try and help with the tracking. On September 16, 1973, four years before the murders, Hart had escaped for the second time from the Mays County Jail in Pryor, Oklahoma, after being convicted of kidnapping and sexually assaulting two pregnant women, as well as four counts of first-degree burglary. Police conducted a massive search of the area surrounding Camp Scott in an effort to capture him, but were unsuccessful for a period of time. One of the OSBI agents assigned to the case was a Cheyenne Arapaho Indian named Harvey Pratt. Before arriving at the scene, he had consulted his medicine man in Oklahoma City and was informed that the man they sought was protected by a powerful medicine man. Although medicine men are supposed to use their power for the good, in this case, it was being used for an evil purpose. He further warned Pratt that the medicine man had placed a curse on the so-called wonder dogs that had been brought in to track down the suspect. The detectives laughed when told this, but Harvey Pratt didn't. Pratt was confident in the capabilities of medicine and the power they're capable of. Shockingly, soon after, one of the dogs suddenly died and it was explained away as the result of heat exhaustion. Then another dog ran out in front of traffic and was struck and killed. He was valued between $10,000 and $20,000. Pratt was told that Hart's medicine was so strong he could change himself into a bird or a cat and that is why he has never been caught. One night, one of the surviving wonder dogs had picked up Hart's trail and ran off into the darkness out of sight. The dog returned minutes later after having been viciously attacked. On another day, the dogs hit on Hart's scent and took to a clearing in a meadow and quickly halted as if Hart had disappeared or even flown away. During one of the nights, the Pratt brothers were engaged in an ancient ceremony when suddenly, out of the darkness, Harvey was pounced upon by a cat. After a 10-month manhunt, Hart was finally arrested on April 6, 1978, in the Medicine Man's cabin south of Tahlequah, Oklahoma. While Hart was on the ground, Pratt walked up to him and touched the bottom of his foot to reclaim his power. He was also wearing women's glasses, likely stolen from one of his victims or one of the camp counselors. Inside his shaving kit was a mirror belonging to one of the campers. During Hart's trial in Pryor in March 1979, there were at least four medicine men in the courtroom trying to influence the result of the trial to find Hart innocent. Members of the court arrived in the morning to the aroma of smoke used by the medicine men to purify the room. One night during the trial, the sheriff and a medicine man known as Crying Wolf 
participated in the ancient ceremony using the sacred tobacco to determine the ultimate truth on the grounds of the courthouse just outside of the building. Crying Wolf knew that the result was not up to him, but that whoever was not telling the truth would die. He prophesied that if Hart were guilty and he were to be acquitted, that God would have final justice by taking Hart's life. During the trial, the prosecutor stated that the tape used to bind Denise's hands contained a hair which was similar to Hart. Dr. John McLeod, an expert on male fertility, testified that Hart's sperm matched the sperm found in the victims. The pictures of the women found in the cave linked him to the tape and the newspaper found in the flashlight left at the crime scene. Also, the mirror found in his belongings was identified as belonging to a camper. However, the jury acquitted him of the girl's murders. One reason that many believed that Hart was likely innocent was because sperm was found at the scene of the crime and Hart had had a vasectomy. Also, the sheriff had been accused of railroading Hart and planning evidence including the photographs of the women found in the cave. According to the mothers of the victims, one of the reasons Hart was acquitted was because he was a former high school football star in Cherokee. After Hart was acquitted, people cheered and rejoiced, especially some members of the Native American community who had helped him evade law enforcement for four years because they believed he was innocent. Despite being acquitted of the brutal murders of the three innocent children, Hart still had 305 years of his 308-year sentence left to serve in the Oklahoma State Penitentiary for his previous crimes of abducting and sexually assaulting two women. He returned to prison, and in 1979, two years after the murders, and just a couple months following the acquittal, he died of a heart attack at the age of 35 at the prison after exercising. During his autopsy, it was discovered that his vasectomy had been a failure and he would have been capable of leaving sperm at a crime scene. In 1989, DNA testing showed three of the five pieces of evidence matched Hart's DNA. In 2008, authorities conducted new DNA testing on stains found on a pillowcase, the results of which proved inconclusive because the samples were too deteriorated to obtain a DNA profile. In 2017, donations raised by the sheriff covered the cost of new DNA tests using the latest advances in testing. In 2022, authorities made public that DNA evidence strongly suggested Hart's involvement. The results of the DNA test have been known since 2019, but did not go public with the findings until asked to do so by the victims' families. After their deaths, the girls' parents felt a lot of guilt and blamed themselves for sending them to the camp. The months following the murders and the ensuing trial were agonizing for their families. Lori's mother, Sherry, said she would wake up in the morning and pray for the strength to make her bed and care for her children for an hour and then another hour. She admitted that she suffered panic attacks so severe she became unable to drive with her children in the car. Eventually, she and her husband, Beau, founded the first Oklahoma chapter of Parents of Murdered Children, which they led for 15 years. She traveled extensively to share Lori's story in the hopes that people would realize that vicious crime can happen to anyone. 
She earned state and national accolades with her campaign for the families of murder victims, testifying at the state capitol, and speaking to law enforcement academies to help raise awareness of a family's needs. Michelle Gousset's father, Richard Gousset, helped establish the Victims' Bill of Rights in Oklahoma, as well as the Oklahoma Victims' Compensation Board. Sadly, Michelle's mother, George Ann, passed away in 2021, and her father, Richard, passed away in 2018, and Denise's father passed away in 1997. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.